Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! The climate crisis, the curtailment of reproductive rights, authoritarianism, these threats aren't looming. They're here now. If you believe Democracy Now!'s reporting on these issues is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20. Go to democracynow.org to make your donation right away. Oh, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! My son Milad, he was uh, only five years old. Uh, he was uh, a cute boy, cool boy, funny boy. Today, we spend the hour looking at the devastating reality for Palestinians living under Israeli occupation. We'll speak to a Palestinian father whose five-year-old son Milad died in a fiery bus crash on a school field trip. Abed Salama's quest to find out what happened to his boy was immediately hindered because he was a Palestinian living on the wrong side of the Israeli separation wall. Abed will join us along with the journalist Nathan Thrall, author of the new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. The aim of the book is to immerse people uh, viscerally in the lives of Palestinians living on the other side of this wall and to make them feel and understand what, what that life is like. And one of the, the things that struck me uh, more than anything as I was working on it was how much pain there is just beneath the surface in every single Palestinian family. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. On Capitol Hill, two Republican leaders emerged Wednesday as leading contenders to replace Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, a day after his ouster by far-right Republicans brought Congress to a standstill. One contender is Ohio Congressmember Jim Jordan, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, leader of the far-right House Freedom Caucus. Former wrestlers at Ohio State University have accused Jordan of failing to intervene as a team doctor sexually abused young men in the 1990s. He was one of the wrestling coaches. Also announcing a run for the Speaker's gavel Wednesday was Republican Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Reporter Stephanie Grace told The New York Times Congressmember Scalise once described himself to her as like David Duke without the baggage, referring to the former Ku Klux Klansman and white supremacist. 
President Biden called on Republicans to quickly elect a new speaker and to change what he called the poisonous atmosphere in Washington. Biden said he's worried congressional gridlock threatens to derail White House efforts to win new funding for USAID to Ukraine, though Biden said his administration has enough funds in reserve to continue sending arms shipments for now and suggested he has a path around Congress if it fails to approve more funding. We can support Ukraine in the next tranche that we need. And there is another means by which we may be able to uh, find funding for that. But I'm not going to get into that now. On Wednesday, the Biden administration said it supplied Ukraine with thousands of assault rifles and more than a million rounds of ammunition seized in the Persian Gulf by the U.S. Navy. The Justice Department says the arms were being sent by Iran's Revolutionary Guard to Houthi rebels in Yemen in violation of a U.N. arms embargo. Meanwhile, peace activists are demanding lawmakers push for a diplomatic solution to the war in Ukraine instead of sending more weapons. On Wednesday, Capitol Police arrested 11 members of the anti-war group Code Pink as they occupied the office of Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders. Code Pink's Medea Benjamin read a statement Sanders delivered in February of 2022 calling for peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. So let's sit down, let's negotiate, and let's come up with a diplomatic solution. That is the good Bernie. (laughs) That's the Bernie we want. Not the other Bernie who is okaying billions and billions of dollars in weapons and says you can't talk to Putin. And we have one word answer to Bernie when he says you can't talk to Putin because he said that to us. We say, try. Right? Try. Try. We want to see what the result of Biden talking to Putin is. Right? In climate news, new data show global average surface temperatures last month shattered the previous record for September, rising to a staggering 1.8 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That's well above the Paris Climate Agreement's limit of 1.5 degrees of warming and half a degree warmer than the previous record. This follows the hottest August and hottest July ever recorded. In northeastern India, at least 14 people are dead, over 100 missing after extreme rainfall in the state of Sikkim caused a dam to partially collapse, washing away roads and bridges and flooding an army base. In Brazil, scientists are blaming an unprecedented heat wave for the deaths of over 150 endangered pink river dolphins in a lake in Brazil's Amazonas state, where water temperatures reached 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Brazilian authorities say the Amazon rainforest is facing a severe drought that could affect a half million people by the end of the year. This comes as a new study in the journal Science Advances finds monsoon rains that sustain the Amazon rainforest are nearing a critical destabilization point and could soon drop by 30 percent, leading to a dieback of the forest. The Biden administration's waived 26 environmental laws to speed the construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall in Texas. The waivers circumvent the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, and the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, among others. It's the first time President Biden's used his authority under the Real ID Act to waive environmental laws. In a statement, the Center for Biological Diversity said, quote, every acre of habitat left in the Rio Grande Valley is irreplaceable. We can't afford to lose more of it to a useless medieval wall that won't do a thing to stop immigration or smuggling. President Biden's cynical decision to destroy a wildlife refuge and seal the beautiful Rio Grande behind a grotesque border wall must be stopped, they said. 
Previously, President Biden had said he would not build another foot of border wall. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed two Palestinians and wounded dozens of others during late-night raids. Israel's killed over 200 Palestinians this year, including at least 27 children. Elsewhere in the West Bank, armed Israeli settlers violently attacked a Palestinian-American family farm in the town of Deir Dibwan, near Ramallah, Sunday night. The attackers set the property on fire, spray-painted the word revenge on a door, and destroyed the family's olive grove. Meanwhile, emergency medical workers in Gaza have reported a spike in ankle injuries among protesters. Israeli forces, including snipers, appear to be deliberately shooting at Palestinians' legs and ankles, wounds that are extremely difficult to treat and can lead to amputations. Human rights groups also say the brutal tactic is unlawful. Recent protests in Gaza have condemned Israeli raids in the West Bank, the storming of East Jerusalem's al a compound by Jewish settlers and the blockade of the Gaza Strip. After headlines, we'll spend the rest of the hour looking at the devastating reality for Palestinians living under Israeli rule. In Egypt, opponents of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi say they've faced violence and other obstacles preventing them from registering their candidates for December's election. Under Egyptian law, candidates have until October 14th to secure at least 25,000 signatures from supporters. But dozens have been arrested attempting to submit signatures, while others have faced attacks by well-organized mobs of pro-government activists. This is Rania al-Sheikh who says her delegation was attacked by thugs as they attempted to register signatures. When we felt that the fight was brewing, we tried to move aside. While we tried, I was pulled by my hair and they started beating my colleague on his shoulder. Ahmed Tantawi, an outspoken critic of President al-Sisi and the most prominent figure hoping to run against him, temporarily suspended his campaign last week after dozens of his supporters were arrested by police. Meanwhile, researchers at Citizen Lab and Google's threat analysis group found Tantawi's personal smartphone was infected with predator spyware and that Egyptian authorities were likely behind the hacking attempts. Mohammed Anwar al-Sadat, head of Egypt's Reform and Development Party, called on Sisi's government to reverse course to provide free and fair elections. If the election is not held in the way that the entire world expects it to be, I say that this will lead to really bad results for the reputation and credibility of this regime, and even for its future. Back in the United States, damning new information has emerged in the bribery indictment against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, his wife Nadine, and two of their three co-defendants. Nadine Menendez hit and killed a pedestrian in 2018 car crash in Bogota, New Jersey. But only, not only did she not suffer any legal repercussions, she received a new car following the lethal crash. According to police reports and dash cam video, Nadine Menendez claimed the 49-year-old victim jumped onto her windshield. She was not held by police or tested for drugs or alcohol after the crash. Video of police questioning her immediately after the crash shows an officer treating her deferentially. Our job is to investigate everything that happens. That's what we're trying to do. Um, obviously, the more information... Wrong? No, no. I, you know? Look, I, I understand. I understand. Um, it does expedite our investigation when people can help us out. Because if we can clear you from any wrongdoing, I want to get you home and comfortable I, and not here anymore. I, you get what I'm saying? Nothing against you. 
The fatal crash took place before Nadine was married to Senator Menendez, but while the two were dating. She received a brand-new Mercedes-Benz four months after the crash. According to court documents in the bribery indictment, the $60,000 car was gifted to Nadine by New Jersey businessmen El Hanna and Jose Uribe, two co-defendants in the bribery case. Prosecutors accused Senator Menendez of offering to put pressure on the New Jersey Attorney General's office to go easy on an associate of Uribe. According to the indictment, while Hannah, an Egyptian-American citizen, quote, worked to introduce Egyptian intelligence and military officials to Menendez for the purpose of establishing and solidifying a corrupt agreement, unquote. Senator Ben Cardin, who has replaced Menendez as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, just blocked $235 million in U.S. military funding to Egypt. A judge has set a trial date of May 6 in the bribery case against the Menendez couple, Hannah Uribe, and another businessman, Fred Dibes. And President Biden's approved another $9 billion in student loan relief, affecting some 125,000 borrowers. More than half the amount will go to 53,000 people who've been working in public service for at least a decade. The rest will be split to provide relief to those enrolled in income-driven repayment plans and borrowers with disabilities. The latest move to lessen the burden of student debts comes months after the Supreme Court blocked Biden's plan to cancel up to $20,000 in student debt for tens of millions of people. Despite the right-wing court's ruling, the Biden administration's been able to pass $127 billion in debt relief for over 3.5 million borrowers. Debt activists are calling on Biden to cancel all remaining student debt. Federal loan payments resumed October 1st after a pause of more than three years during the pandemic. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, a day in the life of Abed Salama. Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. Stay with us. Umri, performed by Um Kulthum. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour looking at the devastating reality for Palestinians living under Israeli occupation. The acclaimed journalist Nathan Thrall has just published a new book titled A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. Abed Salama is a Palestinian father who lives in Anatta, a segregated Palestinian neighborhood on the outskirts of Jerusalem that's surrounded on three sides by the 26-foot-high Israeli separation wall. Many refer to it as the apartheid wall. In February of 2012, tragedy struck Abed's family. 
His five-year-old son, Milad, died in a fiery bus crash during a school field trip to a theme park. Abed's quest to find out what happened to his son was immediately hindered because he was a Palestinian living on the wrong side of the separation wall. He held the wrong ID to pass Israeli military checkpoints and didn't have the right papers to enter the city of Jerusalem. Nathan Thrall, who lives in Jerusalem, first wrote about this tragedy in a remarkable 2021 essay for the New York Review of Books. On Wednesday, Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I spoke to Nathan Thrall and Abed Salama. Nathan began by discussing why he wrote about Abed Salama and the tragedy his family faced. You know, the, the, this event is uh, every parent's uh, worst nightmare and uh, an, an awful, awful tragedy under any circumstances. Uh, but it was made uh, so much worse by the uh, unique circumstances in which it took place, um, by the uh, fact that the victims were Palestinian, that it took place uh, on a road that is uh, controlled by Israel, patrolled by Israeli police, but on the other side of a separation wall, a 26-foot-high concrete wall that uh, separates and segregates uh, tens of thousands of uh, Palestinians from Jerusalem, born and raised in Jerusalem, residents of the same city I live in, uh, but who are cut off from the city that they were born and raised in, uh, specifically because of their uh, ethnic identity. And uh, this, these people live in the same city as me, but they live an entirely different existence. And um, the parents of the kids on this bus live in a uh, walled ghetto, uh, encircled on uh, three sides by this separation wall, and a fourth side uh, by a different wall that runs in the middle of a segregated road, uh, famously called the Apartheid Road. Um, and inside that walled ghetto, which sits just underneath the manicured grounds of Israel's most prestigious university, you can look down on it from Hebrew University down onto this uh, ghetto with um, uh, trash being burned in the street because the municipal services uh, are non-existent there, with uh, no sidewalks, uh, roads in total disrepair. When I drive into this uh, area uh, to visit Abed and other families there, I have to pull off uh, to the side of, uh, and uh, just to let a bus pass on the main artery for tens of thousands of people. I'm, I'm rolling down my window and pulling in my side mirror to let um, a, a uh, regular uh, bus pass me. Um, and this is just the uh, everyday reality of all of these people. Um, they uh, receive virtually no services from the city that they uh, pay taxes to. And uh, they are uh, forced to um, 
uh, prove that they have maintained their residency in the right part of this enclave, or else Israel will strip them of their blue ID, which allows them to travel in and out of Jerusalem, and they live in terror of having this blue ID taken away from them. Um, some of the parents uh, in this area have green IDs, some have blue, they're all from the same families, and uh, the outcome for them on this day was uh, uh, very different. There were real consequences to having a different colored permit on that day. Abid was one of the parents who um, wasn't able to go and look for his uh, kid in Jerusalem when he was told that that's, that's where his boy was. Um, and other, um, other parents uh, did. There were uh, bystanders, because the emergency services came so very late, all of the kids had been evacuated uh, by just ordinary people in private cars uh, before the, the first uh, uh, Israeli uh, emergency service uh, provider arrived. And, and those people themselves drove off in all kinds of different directions depending on what kind of what color ID they had and whether they could pass through a checkpoint. And there was total chaos. Parents didn't know where their own uh, children were. And, and so this uh, awful event allowed... Uh, me in telling the story to describe the uh, entire elaborate system of segregation and subjugation and apartheid in which uh, all of these um, people live. Abed, I hate to take you back to that day, but it is the such an important story for people to understand. Introduce us to your little boy, Milad, and talk about what happened that day. <clears throat> Hi, everyone. Uh, my son, Milad, he was uh, only five years old. Uh, he was uh, a cute boy, a cool boy, funny boy, uh, loved the life. So the day before the accident, in the night, he said, Father, I want to buy some sweets and, and uh, chocolates for, the, for my trip. It's, it, it is the first trip with the school. Uh, so I took him to a grocery around supermarket, and he buy uh, uh, his things and uh, the favorite chocolate, uh, kinder kids and juice. And then we go back home. Uh, he was very excited to join his friends in the in the journey, in the trip. So we got to sleep earlier. Uh, next day, I was planning to go to Jericho with uh, for a business with my cousin. Uh, the weather in the morning was uh, very stormy, so I got up. I didn't see Milad when uh, his mother prepared him and. Uh, put him in the bus to in, in the car to the school so uh, after an hour uh, my cousin came and uh, we took his car in our way to Jericho then I received uh, a phone call from my nephew he asked me if Milad uh, in the bus Nurul Huda school in the bus to the trip, I said, uh, I told him, yes, he's there. He said, Uncle, he's, uh, there's an accident in Jabba Road, the uh, bus is crashed. 
so <coughs> Uh, we went, uh, we changed our way from Jericho to Jaba Road in that stormy weather. When uh, we arrived uh, <coughs> before the accident, uh, the place of the accident, before there was, there is a, a, a military, Israeli military checkpoint. They are, uh, they uh, closed the street before. Uh, they, they didn't allow to uh, us to pass with the car. So I jumped out of the car and start running to the place of the, to the accident. Uh, in my way up, you know, it's raining and stormy weather. Uh, military jeep passed on me, passed. So I start to, I wanted to stop them to take me with them. They, they didn't take me. So I continue my way to the place of the accident, running uphill. <clears throat> so when I received there, there was nothing. Only I saw the bus uh, crashed on the side and a big trailer on the other side of the street. Uh, so I start uh, asking about what happened to the kids, where are the kids? Everyone, there was uh, many, many people around. Uh, there was only one uh, fire uh, truck. I didn't see any uh, ambulances at the time. Uh, I saw only civilian uh, police officer from the PA. So uh, the main thing at that time, I was wanted to know what happened to the kids. Where are they? And start searching. I'd asking, where are they? Where uh, where is the where is where is the where is the kids? So uh, somebody told me that uh, they took them to some of them took to a Dasein Karim Hospital in East Jerusalem. Uh, others told me there uh, they took. Uh, uh, them to uh, military space, uh, Israeli military space in, the, in, in around, and others told me may, uh, maybe they took them to the uh, hospital in Ramallah. So I asked, uh, I met two guys from Jenin. I I thought I asked them to take me to Ramallah hospital. I didn't, they are strangers, I didn't know them. They allowed to take me, and then they took me to the to the hospital. When I arrived there, the, it was very crowded. Many, many people there, uh, the parents of the victims, and uh, police, and uh, ambulances, uh, media. It was very, very crowded. And uh, I started to search in the building of the hospital. So I asked the uh, doctor who is in the, in the reception about what uh, what's, uh, I'm looking for my son Milad. He's, he was in the accident. When she looked at the list, she didn't find his name. She, she told me his name is not in the list of the, in this bus. So I, uh, I started to search in the hospital rooms. I didn't meet, I didn't find him. Uh, I met uh, other parents who are from our neighborhood. I know him. They find already find their kids. 
they was injured and I asked them if they say uh, if they saw my my son or uh, their sons uh, know anything about Milad uh, everybody was busy in his own case so everybody said no we didn't uh, find him so here I started my starting to, to search where to search I searched again the same hospital I didn't find him then somebody told me maybe he will, they, they took him to Hadassah in Kerim hospital in East Jerusalem I didn't have a permit to pass the checkpoints to Jerusalem <clears throat> they didn't allow to us to pass because I have a, a green ID Palestinian ID so I called a cousin of mine who have blue ID and asked, asked him to search in Hadassah in Kerim after maybe one hour two hour he called me back he said, I searched all the hospital there, Milad is not there. So after uh, six or seven hours, everyone uh, from the parents find his uh, son injured or uh, safe. Except uh, me and seven uh, other six uh, families. So uh, a doctor from there came to me and uh, <clears throat> he said, uh, uh, you didn't find your son yet uh, and uh, we have to take uh, some blood from you uh, to make a DNA test. I asked him why, he said we have uh, <coughs> six bodies for uh, small children and uh, the body of the teacher burned, burned. <coughs> so he asked me also to call my wife and my uh, son Adam to come to the hospital to take blood from them for the test, DNA test. Uh, I called them, it took more than an hour to receive to the hospital, so they took up a blood from us, my wife was shocked. I was uh, crying, but at the same time I was looking at her face and my Adam some face there was shocked she didn't cry until now I think she's still in, in shock that was Abed Salama describing the death of his five-year-old son Milad in a fiery bus crash on the way to a theme park in Jerusalem in 2012 We'll return to our interview with Abed and journalist Nathan Thrall in a minute. Nathan's new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. Back in a minute. Ships of 
by Rasha Nahas. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue our conversation with Abed Salama, Palestinian father whose five-year-old son Milad died in a fiery school bus crash in 2012 in Jerusalem. Journalist Nathan Thrall writes about them in his new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I spoke to Abed and Nathan on Wednesday. Nathan Thrall, you write about that dangerous road that uh, Milad would die on. You said everyone knew how quickly Israeli forces would descend on a West Bank road the moment a Palestinian kid started throwing stones at Israeli soldiers or settlers. Yet the soldiers at the checkpoints, the troops at Ramah base, the fire trucks at the settlements nearby, they had all done nothing, letting the bus burn for more than half an hour. If you can talk about this— this architecture of separation, of apartheid, that led to the beginning, um, so that what we hear in Abed's story is not just an unfortunate bus crash, um, but so much of which could have been prevented. Yeah. You know, the, the, the um, particular series of events that unfolded that day were uh, entirely predictable because of this system of segregation and neglect that exists in this area. And there had been people who had warned of it. There had been previous incidents where a tragedy had struck on the other side of this wall, and uh, Israeli uh, services were uh, greatly delayed or even prevented uh, from uh, coming to the area. And, and, um, and so, you know, what the book uh, is showing is not, um, you know, the, the passage that you mentioned, those were the words of a man who um, uh, was screaming at Israeli soldiers that morning after he had uh, almost single-handedly rescued dozens of children. He entered a burning bus uh, repeatedly and pulled kids out of this bus and saved dozens of them, and he was uh, in a state of, uh, of shock at the end of this, and he was screaming at every uh, person, but particularly at the Israelis, but also the Palestinian emergency service uh, providers uh, at the scene. And he said those words uh, to an Israeli, um, and, uh, an Israeli soldier, and he was then summarily beaten uh, for uh, uh, saying, saying what he said. Um, and spent several days in the hospital uh, afterward, um, but but the uh, the the point is not that the Israelis who were at the checkpoint just next to the accident and didn't come, or at the military base and took uh, just next to the accident and took forever to come. The, the point isn't that anybody made a deliberate choice to observe a burning bus of kindergartners and do nothing. It's that. This entire system was set up to ensure that there would be a very delayed response, that these people live in utter uh, neglect and nobody cares about them. You also uh, write in the book um, about the small scorched backpacks on the road after the accident. Um, 
if you can talk more about the effect of this system on children, which is the power of this. And let me ask, is really your decision to use this example, this bus crash, the horror of the deaths of the children who died in this um, fiery crash, uh, to show us what's happening in Palestine and Israel? Yeah, it was a very uh, deliberate choice to choose an incident that, um, uh, although uh, horrific, you know, is an incident that takes place, the kind of thing that takes place all over the world is a, is a, is a terrible uh, uh, car accident or a terrible bus crash. And uh, to show what it means for this seemingly ordinary uh, event uh, to take place in this particular place under this uh, system, um, because uh, the 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 point is that the system itself, the policies that are in place, the wall that encircles these communities, the desire to demographically engineer Jerusalem so that it that it would have the maximum number uh, of Jews and the minimum number of Palestinians and to keep for Israel the maximum amount of, law, of land. And the, the entire route of this wall, the way that it snakes around uh, this community and encircles it and traps it in this ghetto, all of that is dictated by this uh, racist logic. And, uh, and I didn't want to choose to tell a story that would be exceptionalized and that we would look at some particular act of, of violence and act about the you know, perpetrators and the victims and why this event took place on this day. I wanted to show the system that is crushing people every day. Um, and uh, it's, it's uh, brought into sharp relief on the worst day of these people's lives, but they are suffering all of these uh, obstacles and, and, um, and all of this uh, uh, pain from this system uh, day in and day out. Nathan, you also describe in your book not only the, the total disregard and neglect of the of the is, is Israeli services uh, uh, to the uh, to the victims of the accident. You also talk about a week later, a left wing uh, television reporter, Israeli television reporter, uh, did a story not so much about the accident itself. But how shocked uh, he was at the reaction of the of uh, of residents of Israeli residents around the area, the accident. That's right. Um, uh, several weeks after the accident, um, an Israeli uh, journalist, a TV journalist, uh, decided to to create a feature about something that had uh, shocked him to his core, which was that. Uh, many, many Israelis on the day of the accident, young ones in particular, were uh, writing uh, uh, how uh, happy they were that these children had died. And um, they were, what, what shocked the, the journalist, his name is Arik Weiss, what, what sh shocked him um, the most was that people did it without hiding their identity. They felt so comfortable um, 
writing uh, racist posts and celebrating the death of innocent five-year-olds um, w- without without masking uh, their their true names, and um, and so he decided to write to to create a feature, a TV feature, about uh, these kids, but also who, who wrote the posts. Some of them, most of them, were kids, I think, uh, and. Uh, and, and really what his aim was, was to, uh, as he says, to, to show a mirror to his own society and to ask, how did we get to a point where uh, so many young people feel that this is acceptable and aren't afraid even of, of, of uh, being caught? Uh, expressing these views and uh, they go on he finds the, many of the people who posted on that day and they go on to proudly reiterate uh, the kinds of things that they had written uh, written that morning and you know the accident was now uh, just over 10 years ago and um, we see that the trends that that um, this reporter was highlighting have only uh, uh, gotten worse, and we see you know senior ministers in the Israeli government who are uh, openly racist, and um, and the, you know when you poll young Israelis, you see they have uh, extremely right wing uh, views and, and racist views. So um, it was a it was a prescient uh, report that he made. Abed Salama, what has been the response uh, in your community, in your family, uh, to Nathan focusing on this tragedy and the loss of Milad uh, in his book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama? In the beginning, my family refused, and especially my wife, she refused to talk about, and until now, she refused to talk about this, uh, the accident and uh, to talk about uh, Milad, our son, until now. So I took uh, this responsibility <coughs> alone. And I decided to share uh, our tragedy with, uh, with Nathan. Uh, maybe for uh, two reasons. The first one is because I, I, I loved all the time to talk about my son. When I talk when I remember him and I started to speak about what him, about what he was doing, about his laughing, his playing, his drawing. So I love that. Because of this, this is the main reason. The second reason, uh, Nathan told me, I, I, I will make from your case, from this accident, I will write an article in the beginning he 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 wrote it an, as an article not a book At, uh, and uh, this will help your uh, community Palestinian community this article will help them to show the the, the Americans and uh, the people around the world uh, how is the uh, Israeli government uh, treat uh, you as Palestinians so when he uh, write the article and uh, I read it and uh, we receive uh, many important comment, comments from around uh, the world, that it is a very strong article. Uh, he said, uh, but we will, I want to make it as a book. 
if you didn't mind, didn't mind I, of course I didn't uh, mind uh, from the beginning as I told you I, I want I want to spend many times with a person like Nathan talking about my son uh, when I start to talk with, about him I feel that his spirit is uh, behind me around me and this time I feel Milad sitting with us here uh, so I love that I think uh, and I hope uh, the book will make some changes and help us as Palestinians to to live our lives as all the people around the, uh, around the world this is what I hope to everyone every father every who responsible uh, on his family he wanted only to live in peace and to grow up his children in peace and safe and safe and uh, as Palestinians we 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 miss this these things any when you go out from your house you or your son go out from his house you didn't expect expect him to come back uh, safe or this is what happened mm. because of that I, I I am happy to share my story with uh, with Nathan I'm here in New York or in America this is my first time here so uh, the life here is different <clears throat> I can see uh, the people here uh, running and playing uh, working enjoy and the kids also uh, people here taking their dogs around in parks uh, we miss these things. I want to tell you something. Uh, I have a dog, a pit bull dog in, in my house. I put him in the roof. You know, the pit bull is a strong dog. So I'm, I'm afraid to take him down to walk with him in the street because the street is, is crowded and it's uh, many, many people. You, we, are, we lived in uh, 130,000 people lived in a small square like many. As uh, Nathan told you, it's a small place for 103,000 people lived there. I can't walk with my dog in the street. I afraid uh, to attack somebody or somebody here or there. Uh, when I saw the people here in America walking with their dogs and uh, playing with their with their kids outside in parking, I, I, I actually, honestly, I, I feel jealous. Yeah. I want this life for my children, for my grandchildren also. I hope. If anyone from the American uh, government hear me, I hope, I, I, if you want, to, we, we, we want only justice. This is what we want as a Palestinians in the Palestinian Authority. And Nathan, let me ask you, um, you first wrote this essay in 2021 that appeared in the New York Review of Books. Uh, headlined, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, One Man's Quest to Find His Son Lays Bare, The Reality of Palestinian Life Under Israeli Rule. The article was 50 pages. It in itself was a book. And then you expanded it to the book, um, the main title, the same, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. 
What did you learn as you expanded this investigation? And we've turned to you for analysis in Jerusalem of what's happening there. Um, what surprised you most and what affected you most as you went on this journey with Abed? The book shares just a page or so of text with the article, despite uh, sharing the same title. And um, the aim of the book is entirely different uh, than the article. The aim of the book is to immerse people uh, viscerally in the lives of Palestinians living on the other side of this wall and to make them feel and understand what what that life is like. And one of the, the things that struck me uh, more than anything as I was working on it was how much pain there is just beneath the surface in every single Palestinian family. And the book is um, has Abed's uh, name in the title, but um, it tells the story of many different uh, characters whose lives uh, collided on this day. And, you know, one of the, the themes of the book is the degree to which this oppressive system touches the most intimate uh, decisions in people's lives. I tell a story of, you know, uh, of Abed's uh, early uh, romance and his first marriage, and at one point um, he has a job that takes him um, into the, the center of, of Jerusalem and he is afraid of losing his access to the city because of his green-colored ID. And he and many other people at that time went and sought out wives who had blue IDs or Israeli citizenship. Uh, they were choosing marriage partners in order to keep their freedom of movement, in order to keep their jobs. This is the degree to which this huge oppressive system affects ordinary people. I tell the story of a, of a woman, uh, a, a doctor named Huda Dahbur, who happened to be on her way to treat uh, uh, Bedouin. She worked for the UN Agency for uh, Palestinian Refugees, and she was on her way with her medical team to go and, and treat a group of Bedouin not too far from the site of the accident, and she stumbled on, on this uh, horrific site. And she pulled over with her team and, and helped to rescue uh, children uh, from the bus. And, and I tell part of, of Huda's story. And... Um, uh, you know, Huda had uh, a boy, a, a teenage boy, who quite naturally threw stones at uh, occupying forces in his town, outside his school, who were harassing him and other students uh, uh, every day. And at 1.30 in the morning, uh, Israeli jeeps show up and bang on her door and say to, to Huda, we're here for your son, Hadi. And she can do absolutely nothing. She stands there with tears running down her face, r realizing that the jaws of this uh, state are going to come and snatch her boy and take him away to who knows where. And she spent uh, uh, over 10 days 
looking just to find where, what cell he was in, where he was located. Um, and that feeling of utter powerlessness that is one that every Palestinian family feels, powerlessness to protect your, your own children. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, the theme for me, what was most striking as I, as I talked to these families is how much pain there was and, and how, much, um, how much the state had crept into every single facet uh, of their lives. Nathan Thrall, what are your thoughts about President Biden meeting Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the U.N. and then inviting him to the White House? You know, this is entirely uh, unsurprising. This is what the U.S. has done uh, under every administration. They—it doesn't matter, um, you know, Republican or Democrat. They're all supporting the system— of oppression. And we as Americans are all complicit in it. And uh, not only are we um, not doing anything to stop it, we're funding it. We're giving Israel nearly $4 billion uh, in aid uh, every year, in military aid every year. And we're protecting Israel even from U.N. Security Council resolutions that are condemning settlements that the U.S. is supposedly opposed to. Um, And um, as Israel spits in the U.S.'s face and won't even restrain the the settlement uh, uh, building that it's doing, um, the U.S. is is handing out uh, gifts uh, political gifts to to the most right wing Israeli uh, government in in recent memory, um, and uh, you know not only are they inviting, not only is Biden inviting Netanyahu to the White House, they just admitted uh, Israel into a, a coveted visa waiver program, allowing visa free travel um, for uh, Israelis to the United States. The basis of that. Uh, uh, program, a- as specified in U.S. law, is uh, reciprocity. The states that are admitted to it must treat all U.S. citizens uh, equally. And uh, Israel is not meeting that requirement. <coughs> a group of leading uh, senators have said that very clearly in a letter that they wrote to uh, Secretary of State Blinken. And uh, it's undeniable that a a Palestinian-American who who, uh, travels from, let's say, college in the United States and comes back uh, to visit is treated entirely differently than an Israeli-American coming home to visit uh, from college in the United States. And we had, uh, during the trial period for this visa waiver program, we had uh, Palestinian-Americans who couldn't rent cars at the airport. And that's not to mention all of the other uh, uh, restrictions uh, that they faced. You know, Israelis, Americans would come and, and go and visit a family member wherever they wanted. 40% of the uh, uh, Palestinian population under occupation lives in Gaza. And uh, if you've got a relative in Gaza and you're a Palestinian-American, you can't go visit uh, that relative unless it's a first-degree relative. And then you can only do so. So 
grandchild, for example, you can't visit. Uh, and, and if you do have a first-degree relative, you can apply for a permit to visit them once per year. And th- that's just the tip of the iceberg. So um, the U.S. is deeply, deeply complicit in a system that not only um, <clears throat> treats uh, people differently uh, based on their ethnicity, religion, or national origin, but treats different categories of American citizens differently. And we've accepted that. And the significance of these mass protests, like Israel's never seen in decades, of hundreds of thousands of Israelis marching in the streets, saying that the prime minister, Netanyahu, is violating Israeli democracy by curtailing the independence of the judiciary. Both sides of the protests uh, over the judicial reform in Israel, what they share in common is this notion that Israeli democracy is at stake. Uh, That, uh, you know, the people pushing for the reform are going to destroy Israeli democracy and the people opposed to the reform want to preserve Israeli democracy. Um, but the, the fact is, and, and it's uh, evident just in the uh, simple example of, of the uh, characters in this book, we have uh, Jewish characters in this book who live uh, right next door to uh, uh, to Abed's uh, community of Anata. They live in a settlement called Anatot, built on Abed's family uh, land in part. And these people travel back and forth. They do not uh, go through passport control when they do it. They vote from their settlements. Um, they are not filing absentee va- ballots when they vote. They are inside the state of Israel. They are fully a part of the state of Israel in every sense, and they have full rights as Israeli citizens. Living right next to them in the same territory are people like Abed and his entire community who do not have Uh, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, not to mention voting rights and everything else. And that's millions of people living under the same state without rights based on their ethnicity. I do not know of any definition of democracy that would include such a state within it. So the notion that this judicial reform is about preserving or not preserving uh, Israeli democracy looks ludicrous to anybody who has stepped foot in Anata and Anatot. Nathan Thrall and Abed Salama. Nathan is the author of the new book out this week, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. I'll be doing a public interview with them tonight here in Manhattan at 5.30 p.m. at the New York University Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at 20 Cooper Square. Non-members of the NYU community must pre-register. You can visit democracynow.org for more details. That does it for our show. A happy belated birthday to our director, Becca Staley, and Soldad Aguilar Colon. And condolences to our audio engineer, Miguel Nogueira, and our former producer, Ana Nogueira, on the death of their brother, José Enrique Neto, an actor, playwright, and puppeteer in Lisbon, Portugal. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Fels, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermin Sheikh, Maria Tarasena. 
Tammy Warrenoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamaria Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, Dennis McCormick, Matt Ely, and Emily Anderson. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now!